0: The Supreme Court decides a case that is ready-made for a Netflix special, I mean, undercover sting operations, corrupt police taking bribes, and an inordinate amount of focus on the word so. Okay, maybe Netflix for the grammar nerds. Well, speaking of grammar nerds, Mackenzie Smith is back this week to fill us in on her campaign to be a judge in Pennsylvania. We will see what efforts she has gone through to conceal she was ever associated with this podcast. Well, there is a lot to unpack in this week's Debriefing of the Law. Well, welcome to this week's edition of Debriefing the Law. I am Joel Oster, and today we have back...
1: Mackenzie Smith I'm back
0: that was your cue and you (laughs) you you slightly paused I might take that out in post-production but you know it's so good to hear your voice Mackenzie apparently you've been a very busy person Uh, a lot has gone on since we last heard from you but what, what have you been up to the last I think last I heard you were running a marathon and then what happened
1: yeah, so the marathon was 2020 and then this year I decided to run a different kind of marathon. Um I decided to run for public office. Uh, Specifically, I am a candidate for district judge in my local community. So like the, I'm calling it the Burlington Coat Factory level judicial position. We're at the bottom of the judicial pyramid. Um, It covers five townships, um, which in my community is about, I think, 50,000 people. So that's, that's what I've been up to the past couple months.
0: Now, did you like how I teed that up for you? Yes, I did. <laughs> I got in a marathon runner, and then I just gave it over to you to say how you're running now for a different kind of race. I'm patting myself on the back right now.'ll try Good not job. to um, yeah, exactly well, I also think it's a natural progression. You appear regularly on this podcast. you are ready to become a judge now and rule the legal world, and so I think it's just a natural progression from where you start, uh but no i got I have a lot of questions so first of all. Why are you that insane? Why would you run? I mean, I thought you were a smart person. I thought I knew you. And now you want to become a politician. Please, you got, you got to explain yourself.
1: Yeah. So I don't, I mean, insane wouldn't be my word. Naive, maybe more okay. appropriate. Like I didn't. So I've always wanted to be a judge. Um, ever since my high school, like even before wanting to become a lawyer, I did mock trial in high school. And I, you know, I loved mock trial and obviously like won my case senior year. Um, And I received (laughs) received the golden gavel for best advocate. If anyone's like wondering, I still have it. Um, But I really like in doing that competition, being an attorney, seemed really cool. Um, but I, I was like, you know, what's even cooler is being the judge. And so it's always kind of been in the back of my mind as something I wanted to do ultimately with my career. Um, and as it so happens, the district judge position in my community, it's there's only one seat um, and you have to live within the district. So you can only run for the seat of the district in which you live. Um, so there's only one position and it's a six year term and 2021 happens to be the year when the seat in my district is up for reelection. So if I didn't do it now, I would have to wait, you know, another six years or just go ahead and run for a higher court. Um, so I just decided, you know, I'm, 12 years into my legal career, I'm qualified. I believe that I would be a good district judge. I definitely, you know, have practiced in those courts. I know how they work. I know the rules of evidence and procedure and the substantive law that is applied in those courts. And it was kind of one of those things like... Why wait? I mean, there's actually no Democrat has ever run for a district judge in my particular district. and no really? yes, no
0: Dem- you were the first Democrat to run.
1: <laughs> yes. um the current the incumbent has been uh, unopposed. This would be his third full term. So there's never been a challenger. Um no woman has ever run for this particular district. So it was one of those things like kind of after twenty twenty, like why not? I mean, why Why not at least get the experience, like, learn how to run a campaign, learn how this works? And, you know, the primary was a couple weeks ago, and I ended up doing, like, pretty well. So I am now, very happy with the how results, it went,
0: but, yeah. Before you tell us the results, what you told me earlier was fascinating to me, and that is this. You ran as a Republican— and you ran as a Democrat, so you were in both the Republican and the Democratic primaries. Now, you got to explain: to is that the way it's done? Clear all across Pennsylvania, or just for judges? I had never heard of such a thing.
1: Yes, yeah, so it, it's a it's an idiosyncrasy of Pennsylvania. I think it probably exists in other states too, although I don't know how many. But in Pennsylvania, um, judges are elected. But because judges are supposed to be nonpartisan, they are allowed to what's called cross file on the primary ballots okay. as well as school board candidates. So that's the, the only other position that I know of that's allowed to cross file because school board is also technically a nonpartisan position, although you do typically run as, you know, a party affiliated with a party. Um, so, yes, yeah, so both I, I had I'm running to unseat. The incumbent, as I mentioned, um, and both he and I ran on both primary ballots. So we actually ran against each other twice on the same day, if that makes sense.
0: Wow. (laughs) That'd be like in the NFL, because I I understand everything in terms of football, but that'd be like in the NFL season, if in the AFC championship game, you had the Kansas City Chiefs against the... Oh, I don't know who you want to put in there. Let's just say Denver Broncos, all right? And then over in the NFC Championship game, you had the Denver Broncos against the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, both teams play in both conference championships. That's kind of what you guys did. You guys squared off against each other in both conference finals.
1: That's exactly right. And theoretically, um, so I'm a registered Democrat, and I ran under the endorsement of the Democratic Party in my county, um, and my opponent is a registered Republican, and he ran with the endorsement of the Republican Party in our county. So, you know, obviously things were kind of predestined to work out a certain way, or were more likely to work out a certain way, but theoretically... He could have won the Democratic ticket, and I could have won the Republican ticket, and then you would have a Democrat running as a Republican and a Republican running as a Democrat, (laughs) which would have been really crazy. Or one person can obviously win both tickets, in which case they're unopposed in the general election in November. So it can work out in— a lot, there are lots of different permutations of how it can work out. But at the end of the day, I ended up winning the Democratic primary. My opponent won the Republican primary. And things are right in the world as they should be. So that's, that's okay. how it worked. Yeah.
0: So you won the Democratic primary. He won the Republican primary. So now you guys are both going to face off again for a third time in the general election. Now, uh, if you were to add up the number of votes that were cast... What uh, what, is this, what is the number distinguishing both candidates?
1: Right. So there, it was actually a pretty bipartisan race, which I'm super proud of and happy about. Um, so I ended up getting about 15% of the Republican vote, and he ended up getting about 16%. I think I might be off by one or two percentage points of the Democratic vote. There were a total—we had a pretty good turnout for an off year. You know, these are— um, off year primary elections aren't like, you know, big, huge turnout elections. But in our district, we had about a 30% turnout, which is much more than it's been, you know, previously in off year primaries. A- About 11,300 people voted in total on both the Democratic plus the Republican ballots, and the differentiation was 10 votes, so .08%, which in a general election, if that were to happen again, would be like well within automatic recount territory, so pretty much neck and neck.
0: I'm just gonna lay this out there. Do with it what you will, but I do have election law experience. So I'm just saying, if you need someone <laughs> in your corner as an election law, you know, attorney, uh, check out my resume. Wow, that actually sounds really close and exciting. And so I know once you hit the campaign trail, I don't. I think your husband called me saying, "Have you seen her? Because I have not seen her forever." Uh, it, it's really, it, it demands a lot of your time. I mean, how, what was your average amount of, of work on the streets campaigning?
1: Yeah, so I'm running um, a very grassroots campaign. It was essentially just me. I uh, pretty much have lost you. I
0: can't hear you that much.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I was running a very grassroots campaign. It was pretty much just me. Um, and I did have. So the first part of the process is when you seek the endorsement. So our countywide endorsement convention was in February, and I did seek the Democratic endorsement and I received it. So that helped a lot. I was immediately embraced and supported, and I got so much support from the local um, Democratic zones in my area. And just there are just some great people who, you know, this is all for them mostly on a volunteer basis. They're not paid professionals. They just, you know, really are enthusiastic about public policy and public service and got a lot of guidance and support from them. Um, But for me, as a first-time candidate, there was a very very steep learning curve so i pretty much you know did did most of it myself i did form a pack so i have a pack um and that was that was a learning process i had to get a chairperson and a treasurer both of whom are related to me um because that's just how <laughs> this is going but yeah once i started actually hitting the campaign trail, uh, I would go out knocking doors, you know, three to four days a week. And it was a lot. I mean, it just takes a lot of time. And, um, the area in which I live, like a lot of the neighborhoods are, um, you know, upper middle class. And so the houses are really far apart. And I realized that, you know, on average, I took like a very informal um, surveys, but like on average, Republicans had longer driveways than Democrats, but Democrats have better landscaping than republicans in wow. my area. That's my personal like survey results. But yeah, I, I walked a lot. I walked <laughs> you know many 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 more than a marathon worth of miles. More than several See.
0: marathons worth of miles for sure. I told you your marathon training did pay off. Well, I know that you are as a judicial candidate, you're not supposed to comment on things that might come in front of you. That being said, I want to test your um, your judicial competency here a little bit. So I'm going to put you on the spot uh, to see how you might rule in a couple of these cases that I found. You know, across the nation, not in Pennsylvania, but let, have you ever heard of this case? Coming in in the courts there in Pennsylvania, a felony assault and assassination of an iguana.
1: Oh, um, no, that's <laughs> no. I have not heard that before. Um, sounds like, you know, a, a little bit of overreach and perhaps misuse of law enforcement <laughs> resources there. So I probably would not would not hold that case over for a trial.
0: See, an iguana is not probably natural uh, uh, to um, uh, the Pennsylvania area. I'm just guessing. I, I don't know that. This, you might have surmised, came from Florida. And uh, yeah, the, this <laughs> person. <don't> <laughs> yeah, exactly. This person, it was in a public park and went up to this iguana and then just allegedly just started beating it. And then it ended up dying. And some of this was caught on videotape. And I, I got the complaint. I got the motion to dismiss, the response to the motion to, to dismiss. There there's a lot of legal billing going on on this felony assault of an iguana it's interesting because i'm just gonna tell you you know that what the defense was of the the person who the, the defendant is defending himself by using this stand your ground doctrine so theoretically you are allowed to stand your ground if someone is assaulting you you don't have to necessarily retreat he says look that should apply here because this iguana was uh, assaulting me and i was just trying to stand my ground Pretty creative use of that. The one negative to that would be the existence of videotape uh, showing that he actually approached the iguana. But nonetheless, (laughs) fascinating legal case down in Florida, most likely not going to come up there in Pennsylvania. It just makes me
1: question the wording of the Florida aggravated assault statute, because how is that not limited? I mean, you know, if this is a wild iguana, there may be and, in you know, probably should be animal cruelty statutes or other, you right, know, right. D- at least some kind of disorderly conduct that this could be prosecuted under. But aggravated assault, I mean, we're talking one or two steps down from- murder. So I just right, don't, right. I'm questioning how that wouldn't be limited to like human beings and whether that's a little, you know, we might be overreaching there in our, in our law enforcement.
0: <laughs> now, now this next question I think is a, is a fair question to ask you. So let's say you are out there in the wild. Let's say you're out there in a public park in Florida on vacation and you come face to face with a three foot iguana. What are you doing?
1: You know, I, um, I go to Florida a lot. Um, cause my parents, live there in the winter and i've come pretty close to like gator so i don't right. think i would be that upset about okay. it i think i would just All probably right. like take a picture and then walk away
0: now, I don't know if I like you approaching gators. My ones, actually, I have a couple stories where I've had encounters with gators. One of my stories was I was there with my wife and my young, young son. Zach was very young at that point in time, maybe six years old, five years old. And there were a lot of alligators in our neighborhoods. We, we backed up to Lake Jessup there in Florida, which is the lake where they would dump all the gators they found in public streets. They would dump them there in Lake Jessup. So we had a ton of gators in our neighborhood. And I wanted to go hunting for gators. And so we we went down to this pond, this lake where we knew they were, and I saw this gator outside of the water just looking at my wife and my son. So I started walking over there, and the gator then sunk. I go, Oh, the gator sunk. So then I backed up, and the gator rose to the top of the lake. And so I walked forward again, the gator sunk. And this went on and on. In other words, the gator saw me and thought, this guy's too big. He wanted to eat my wife's legs, I guess, or maybe my young son. I don't know. And saw me as some kind of a uh, uh, problem with that plan. And so, but nonetheless, um, hey, if you're... Yeah, They're no if,
1: joke. You don't mess with Gator. I mean, there was that tragic, horrible case that happened at Disney World several right. years ago. I mean, you don't, yeah, you don't get your kids and especially, well, especially your kids, obviously. But I think dogs a lot... Um, People have well, it depends on whose
0: attacked. dogs you're talking about. My yeah. wife's dog, yeah, I might put her on, you know, on the leash out there and just kind <laughs> of go out for lunch. But I get for most dogs, you would be you'd be very concerned about that. Uh, and so um, I, I get your point. All right, but this next case might come before you, so feel free to say you're going to pass on this question. But nonetheless, here it is. This person was on. He was, I think, allegedly seventy. I say allegedly because I don't remember. Let's say seventy four years of age, and he was attending trial by Zoom. And you know, Sometimes trial by Zoom is difficult to to understand. He was not one of the lawyers arguing the case. He was just one of the lawyers involved with the, the, the matter. But apparently his picture then shows up on the screen there uh, on this trial by Zoom where someone else is making an argument and he decides to flip off the screen. Have you ever heard of such a thing where you're flipping off the screen?
1: I mean, I have not heard of that case. I can... <laughs> conceive of that happening (laughs) yeah
0: his first defense was number one i was just pointing at the screen no that's not going to fly don't use that as a defense that's not going to work there's a big difference between using your middle finger to point something out like there's a fly as compared to flipping someone off it's not the same look right we all agree with that and then secondly his defense was well, he didn't really know that he could be seen. He was actually flipping off the computer because the computer was ticking him off. So he's flipping his computer off. The court was not buying that one as well and sanctioned him $3,000. But I got to tell you, McKenzie, this is my takeaway from that story. And I'd be interested to get your response to it. Do you remember that um, one trial where that lawyer did not know how to work the filters and accidentally was a kitten? Yes, which the... was
1: like so great.
0: Yeah, Right. <laughs> What would it look like if a kitten was trying to flip off a <laughs> the <don't know>. uh, <laughs> like screen? I have no idea. Maybe he'd be better off using the kitten uh, the kitten filter. I don't know, but there you go. Those are my wacky case updates. Uh, anything he definitely wacky? would
1: have been better off using the kitten filter, and it's just like, I mean, I can, I think I can say like I, I would. Like the judge in that case, find those defenses to be not credible, and I would not, you know, accord them much weight. But (laughs) I also think, like, you know, you kind of have to be very short sighted to do something like that because it's so easy to just turn off your camera, have whatever outbursts you need to have, or like walk out of the sight line of your camera. You're not even in the courtroom where the judge can see your every move. Like, how stupid do you have to be to, like, actually direct it at the camera. So, yeah, (laughs) maximum maximum sanctions on that one.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, hey, there you go. The interesting world when it comes to Zoom. By the way, I just got a notice on one of my cases where I actually get to, I say get to because it's in Miami, Florida, uh, appear in person. It's going to be a live court setting there in in Miami, Florida. And so, I am it's my first actual court appearance. I got to go find my pants. I'm sure there's somewhere in my closet. A little, several court appearances have just been, you know, dressed from the, the waist up, not, you know, probably gym shorts from the waist down, but I'm not sure that's going to pass when I actually have to appear in court. So, I need to go check out my my closet, but Yeah, definitely
1: right. put the bottom half of your suit on. But that's super exciting. We have um we're waiting for oral argument Dates in two, in two cases, one in San Francisco and then one here in Pennsylvania. And I'm curious to see whether they will be scheduled in person or via Zoom. I I have a feeling, you know, at least the the Court of Appeals one will be telephonic or over Zoom. But, you know, I'm I'm kind of waiting, you know, anticipating getting back into the courtroom. It's totally different over Zoom. It's not the same at all. And I know it, it's very convenient and. You know, but when it comes to especially cases where you have a jury, there's just right. you can't you can't duplicate that electronically. So I'm looking forward to it.
0: I got I actually did oral argument uh, before the 11th Circuit recently and. It was it was fascinating to do it via Zoom because you know you have notes all over the place because I had this camera set up and by the way of course you've seen my setup it's it, it, it's professional look I mean I got we have a professional grade camera uh, I got a you know really nice microphone I got the boom arm everything working for me and my opponent. No, I mean, he just simply had whatever was on his laptop, you know, a horrible camera and, and, and recording. And so the people who actually listened to the argument said, I sound like I was some kind of radio voice booming through the courtroom <laughs> as compared to my opponent. I thought, well, see, that's my mic. That's my whole setup. It really kind of works in court. My youngest son said, Dad, you're just flexing. You don't really need to, have to use that equipment. Well, if I have the equipment, I'm going to use it. But apparently the younger generation calls that flexing, whatever Well, that yeah, means. but
1: you have, you have ethical obligations to be the best advocate for your client, right? I mean, if you have this equipment, I would argue that you're almost obligated to use it and give the best presentation. You know, you don't, a, a client doesn't want to hire a lawyer who dresses sloppily and goes into courtroom and has a, a disheveled look. It's the same thing. If you're doing it over Zoom and electronically, you have an obligation to give the most polished. Of course, the most important thing is the substance of your argument. But judges, well, like anyone else, is distracted by a sloppy presentation. So, you know.
0: Exactly. So for you lawyers listening, give me a jingle. I'll let you know the kind of mic I use and the whole setup. And then for hey i I'm sure we can work out a deal. Well, it has been a busy week at the Supreme Court. In fact, this is a sweeps season at the Supreme Court, coming out with decisions almost daily. Uh, Mackenzie, you've been paying attention to the Supreme Court since I kind of maybe you're eyeing that in the future. I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I I've I've been busy, so I I will admit that I haven't been giving it or at least prior to mid-May, wasn't giving it the amount of attention that I normally do, um, other than there was one case that directly impacted my practice. Um, so that okay. case I was really? following. But cool. yes, um, that ca- that decision came out Um, I want to say like one of the last days of March. So it wasn't one of these big June sweeps cases, but it was big for for our practice. So I was definitely following that case. I had my alert set up. Um, But since I've been taking a couple weeks off from campaigning here, I've been getting back in the loop. And June is always a really exciting time at the Supreme Court. And of course, we have a new justice this term. So that makes it doubly exciting and kind of intriguing to see what the court's going to do on some of these big cases.
0: Now, I don't want you to give away trial strategy, but in your case right now, as you said, the Supreme Court just ruled and it impacted your case. Is there a chance your case involves similar issues and then can go up to the Supreme Court? Or is this one of those deals where now you're going back and trying to figure out how the new opinion applies to your case?
1: Um, Probably the latter. Um, So our case is currently in the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and the Supreme Court decision came out right before, I want to say like the week before, wait, is this correct? Yes, the week before the appellant filed their brief, and then we're the appellee, so we had a month to Ah. then file our brief. So uh, a lot of the briefing has now discussed this case, and it's going to be one of those cases where, you know, we might be the first... Um, circuit decision or the first decision in the Ninth Circuit to interpret this Supreme Court case. And the the issue is um, specific personal jurisdiction. So it's an issue that has, you know, far reaching implications in many, many, many different kinds of cases. So it's, it's, it's a constitutional issue, which is exciting. So yeah, it was a big one for us.
0: Now, this also is an ethical issue. I'm not going to ask you to come, but I will just tell you from my own personal experience, I have had cases where I have, in the in the you know inner parts of my heart and my soul, I wanted to lose that case because then I knew, okay, then the Supreme Court will take this case. But if we won it, then I knew the Supreme Court would just pass on it because we had won. It's consistent with Supreme Court opinions, whatever. There's no conflict with the circuits. So there's a the part of you that wants to lose the case so that way you can finally get up before the Supreme Court. But, of course, I never actually want to lose my client's case, but um, it would be nice to actually get in. I had a couple of cases that ended up at the U.S. Supreme Court but, you know, the, the bosses that be kind of do the power play there and take over the case at that point in time. But, hey, nonetheless, let's move on now to the case at the Supreme. Because this this is sweep season at the Supreme Court. They're dealing with a lot of fun, interesting cases. And this last week, Mackenzie, the Supreme Court issued an opinion in Van Buren v. United States. Now, are you familiar with that case?
1: I am. Okay, this is the first Amy Coney Barrett opinion that I've read. So it's like the first... It's it's interesting for many reasons. So it's the first Amy Coney Barrett opinion that I personally have read. It's also a decision that interprets a federal statute, which is fair enough. I mean, you know, I think maybe the average person or most people who aren't like total nerds like us kind of think of what the Supreme Court does as arbitrating just constitutional issues all the time and like right. you know, what is due process and is there a right to this or that and that's not only, like the only thing that they do they also are the court of last resort on federal law like federal statute so this right. is like a statutory case and as a linguist for me as well like super interesting it's probably so boring to like 99 percent of people but for me like the whole decision rests upon the I feel like I'm saying that famous poem that everyone reads in like middle school, like so much depends upon the red wheelbarrow. Like the whole decision <laughs> depends upon the definition of the word so, or I may also be right. interpreting like Bill Clinton's deposition transcripts, right? <laughs>
0: like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it it's all like, turns what on one so tiny
1: word. So it's very interesting.
0: I, I don't even know what "so" means. Can you do, can you define off the top of your head, uh, Miss Nerd? Can you define "so"?
1: Well, so it depends, right? <laughs> like, and now I really do sound like Bill Clinton giving a deposition. But it it actually does because it can be like I think "so" can even be a different part of speech, right, depending on the context. So in this case, um, the the federal statute involved is the Federal Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which prohibits. Right. Um, A person from accessing a computer with authorization and then using such access to obtain information that the accessor is not entitled so to obtain. That is what the the statute says. And when you read it, you're like, wait, what? And I think that's kind of the issue in the case.
0: I want you to leave it right there, uh, just on the edge there. We're going to come back to it. But You just went over really quickly the facts of the case, and these facts of, this, of the case, which you mentioned in our pre-podcast, uh, you know, planning session. This is a Netflix special in the making. I mean, this probably has at least a couple of seasons. This is is an incredible fact pattern. So I want to draw some attention to it. So this case dealt with this police sergeant, uh, Van Buren. And uh, he was kind of a shady sergeant. and, And he was not beyond allegedly taking bribes to, you know, to do things. So he approached this one individual named... Albo, now Albo, again, allegedly, my lawyers tell me I got to say allegedly. So Albo allegedly was in the business of, again, also a shady character. He would pay young prostitutes to spend time with him and then accuse the women of stealing the money he gave them. So he had a lot lot of these extortion rings going on. Well, apparently Van Buren, the police sergeant, went to this individual Alpo for a loan saying he needed $15,000 to cover his son's medical bills. Well, Alpo was saying, hey, look, you know, um, I don't like, this feels like a shakedown to me. Uh, And so he went to the FBI, and they got a wiretap on his police sergeant. And so Alpo went to him the next day, or it's Albo, I think, went to him the next day. Yeah, Alpo, Albo, whatever the difference is. Uh, He goes there and basically says, hey, you know, um, I want you to... Uh, get me some information on this lady. Is she a police informant? Can you run her through your database and tell me whether or not she's a police informant? And the police sergeant said, yes, he would do that in exchange for some money. So yeah, for a bribe, he went and was going to out a police informant. Well, obviously this is all part of an FBI sting. He goes and looks through his computer, for this information about this lady and that is the subject of then this claim under this uh the, the, this computer uh fraud claim. So th- those are the facts. Uh, I think that's a Netflix special special in the making. Uh now why what is the allegation that that is is a criminal act? What what is the the, the law?
1: Yeah, so couple things like it's um like number 1 the police sergeant obviously was entitled to access this information in okay. his role as a police sergeant, right? Like he obviously, like that's a database that police would access in the course of their employment all the time. Um, right. But the the allegation, or he was charged at, with a federal offense. So that's another thing to mention is that you know this this is a criminal case. It wasn't like oh he got fired from his job, which right. I'm sure he probably also did. But this case is about the federal <laughs> let's criminal charge. So. Yeah, let's hope so. This case was about the federal criminal. So he's also being charged, you know, and could go to federal prison for this. And so the the charge was that he exceeded his authorized access. So again- Okay, and
0: that is the, the phrase actually from the statute. Correct. Exceeds authorized access. And as you're pointing out- He actually had authorized access to these files. He used them on a daily basis, but not for bribery. So how do we make that distinction?
1: Well, that's exactly what the issue in the case was. And another reason for which this case is kind of mind-blowing when you first look at it is, you know, the government who is prosecuting the police officer is arguing that, you know, anytime someone accesses a computer and then retrieves information or uses information for an unauthorized purpose, or they're getting it for an unauthorized reason or an illegal reason, wherever that, you know law may come from. So it's not from this statute. It might be not authorized under your company's policies, or it might be not authorized under state law, but that makes it a federal crime. So that's what the government was saying.
0: So if you use your computer and you have access to your computer but you use it for improper motives or purposes now according to the government you cross the line and you this is an un- this exceeds authorized access of a computer now that does make me a little nervous and again I'm, I remember from my days working for firms that they would say hey you cannot use your email or the internet for private personal use, which I'm sure was a big laughing matter. It's like, really? Everyone uses their emails to say, hey, you know, um, what are we doing for dinner tonight? Use your phones for that reason. Uh, maybe you're checking your, the ESPN.com. So everyone uses your computer at work for personal uses. Is that now a crime under the government's view of uh, unauthorized use? Well,
1: I think it could be. And see, that's, you know, this actually, this case, while we're talking about it right now, it's actually reminding me of last year when we talked about the Bridgegate case. And it was like a very right. similar issue where the government was arguing in order to uphold these convictions, like a really broad interpretation of a federal statute that had to do with the motivations of The actor of the defendant, right, and not necessarily the the pure language of what the statute actually is. And so Amy Coney Barrett and the you know the uh, motley crew of the majority in this case, because there's you know liberals and conservatives together in the majority. She says no, 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 like this. That's not cool statutory interpretation, you interpret the plain language. We're looking at the dictionary definition and the government's interpretation here is way too broad. It makes no sense. It doesn't, you know, square with the language and we're going to stick with the language. And you know, that phrase that the accessor is not entitled. So to obtain means, you know, um, that the accessor is not entitled to obtain from the computer, and the police officer was entitled to obtain this information from the computer. And therefore, the convictions reversed.
0: So this entire decision, Supreme Court opinion that impacts the rights of 300 plus million people, all hinged on what does so mean. Uh, fast. I, I, I do wonder if politicians, you know, people there in, in Congress or your state houses. Do they really parse out every single word like the Supreme Court thinks that they do? I don't know. I I find that
1: hard to believe because when, I mean, you can understand, right? Like when you're writing something, it happens to all of us all the time. Like when we're writing a text message to somebody, like we know what we mean. It's like so obvious to us. Like, oh, well, obviously I'm talking about X, Y, Z, but the person, the interlocutor, the reader of the text might read it. And for whatever reason, their mind is on something else or just their life experience leads them to interpret ABC instead of XYZ, or in this case, ACB, right? So it it happens all the time. And I think, you know, legislatures, especially Congress, I mean, hopefully, would pay attention to the words that they're using. But I mean, for those of us who, you know, work in the field and deal with statutory interpretation all the time, like it can be a real mess, (laughs) (laughs)
0: Now, a lot of interesting takeaways from this case. The first takeaway that I want to point out is, the and you alluded to this, was the odd collection of justices in the majority. And so this was a six to three decision. The three conservative justices who were in the majority uh, were all the three Trump appointees. So they all ruled against Trump's position in this case. So that was somewhat interesting. But also it really pits the textualist against the textualists. It's very similar to the Bostock case where you had textualists making textualist arguments on both sides of the uh, of the, the majority and the dissent. Now, this is how this plays out in this case because Thomas wrote the, the, the dissent here. And Thomas was saying, look, you got to use words in their ordinary, normal meaning. And clearly here, when someone exceeds their authority, that's exactly what happened. Everyone knows you don't have authority to use your computers for bribery. I mean, that, that is not a proper use of your government's um, uh, computers and databases and your passcode, whatever. Everyone would understand that exceeds the authority. This is not a case where you're checking Facebook out on, on, on the Internet, right? This, this is so far removed from that. You're being absurd. That's a Thomas's view. Amy Coney Barrett has an opposite view. Says, "No, look at the actual words. We're going to look at the the technical definition of every word and let that uh, reach its its own conclusion." So I find it interesting that both the majority and the dissent y- approach this case using textualism, and they reach the opposite result.
1: And also, you have, you know, a, a ruling in favor of a criminal defendant, right? So they're kind of upholding the rights of criminal defendants, but they're ruling against a police officer. I mean, there's so many ways in which this case kind of defies the norms. And I think it's important for us to study these cases, because the ones that get the most press, you know, and this came out early in sweep season, the ones that get the most press are always at the end and they're typically, well, they used to be 5-4 decisions, and now they'll probably be 6-3 decisions, and they're on these, right. you know, culture, hot, cultural hot-button issues, and those are the ones that get the headlines, right? But that's not representative of the day to day work that the court does. I mean, there are several of those each term and they do get the press for good reason, but there are a lot of other cases where, you know, you kind of have these unique, um, interesting decisions where, you know, unlikely bedfellows kind of work together to, you know, do render decisions that you may not expect. So I think these are actually really fun ones to study.
0: Now, uh, one of the, uh, several things I want to still point out about this decision. One of them was Amy Coney Barrett, writing in the majority, wrote a, a hilarious uh, phrase here, and, and apparently she she borrowed it from. Justice Kagan, who coined it in an earlier case, but Barrett was basically in response to the argument that this underscores the implausibility of the government's interpretation of this phrase. She says, look, of that argument, this is just extra icing on a cake already frosted. Hey, you, you got to use that. You got to find some way to use that phrase. You know what, that's good, but that's just extra fro- extra icing on a cake already frosted. Yeah, have you ever heard that phrase before? I
1: hadn't before this, but I got. You said it was. She took it from Kagan, right? I gotta say, right. Kagan, this term has been on fire with the quips. <laughs> right. She has been like in the case, the personal jurisdiction case I mentioned. It, it was Ford Motor Company versus Montana Eighth Judicial Circuit, and they're talking about the minimum contacts that Ford, the you know car company, had with the the states where the lawsuits were brought, and she called it a veritable truckload of contacts, right? Like, they were okay. minimum contacts. Right, right. It was a truckload of contacts. And
0: a truckload. Yeah,
1: there was another case where she was saying, you know, um, the... The appellant tries to compare not only apples and oranges, but apples to watermelons. I mean, she's been on fire, and (laughs) these sound so, you know, trivial when you say them, but for for Supreme Court justices, like, these are great turns of phrase, and I really have enjoyed her writing this term. I think she's kind of, you know, getting into her groove as a justice, and it's great to see.
0: Oh I love it when you can read that's why I loved reading Scalia's opinions because they were entertaining. He was he was an interesting writer. And it, it, sometimes legal writing can get boring, not if you take my class on legal writing storytelling. In that class we teach you how not to be boring, but at least here that's interesting writing. Extra icing on a cake already frosted. It All sounds
1: right. amazing to me. I'll take extra frosting. Like that's fine.
0: Great! I would take that cake. My son would take that cake. He actually puts chocolate frosting on top of his chocolate frosting. I'm not sure there's actually a cake or brownie on the bottom there. It's just all frosting. But nonetheless, um, one other last thing I want to comment about this case is the intri- sometimes you glean a little bit about the Supreme, the Justice's life and their experiences and what maybe they've done, right? Have you ever heard this thought that if someone is going to object to you doing something, they probably are also doing that same thing? Uh, yeah. Y- y- have you heard that concept before? Oh, yeah. Okay, so I find it interesting that the court noted a couple of potential problems with the the government's approach, the vast approach to uh, unauthorized use of the computer. And so, for example, I believe Amy Coney Barrett mentioned the uh, millions of otherwise law-abiding citizens uh, that. You know, that interpretation made criminals of all these law abiding citizens uh, because of such trivial conduct that normally goes on, such as embellishing an online dating profile. Does that really go on a lot at work? Is that really what we're trying to protect people on online dating profile, mash.com, Tinder, whatever, saying they're six foot three when really they're five foot seven? I mean, is that something we want to protect?
1: I mean, I don't know if it's something we necessarily want to protect, but I don't think it's something that we necessarily want to criminalize. I mean, you know, you're allowed to lie, right? Like, you're allowed to—allowed to, meaning— you are not a criminal for doing this. What you have a right to right, do okay. and what it is right to do are often two different things. Um, but when we're talking about making federal criminals out of everyone, you know, I wouldn't necessarily put the Tinder exaggerator on the same level <laughs> as like a computer <laughs> hacker, right? So Right,
0: right, right, right. Or the, the last example she gave is someone using a pseudonym on Facebook. So apparently you can get Facebook accounts under a, a fake name and that way you can just kind of stalk your friends but they don't realize stalking them. I don't know what she's all up in, but nonetheless, those are pretty interesting examples that she offered as to why the government's approach and interpretation of the statute is incorrect. Let all people right,
1: engage in their toxic social media behavior without, you know, fear of government repercussion.
0: Yes, uh, we, we, we should do a podcast one day just on appropriate social media behavior, because I have a long list that I, I want to get on my soapbox, and I just want to go off on all these various uses. Do you know why we have social media, Mackenzie?
1: Advertising? What?
0: Well, oh, okay, you be real? I, I'm recipe sharing. I want to know. We, let's bring back the recipes. I, I, it's dinner time. And that is one of the things that sucks about being an adult. Every single day for the rest of your life, you have to answer this question. What's for dinner? And so that's why I like Facebook. Because during the day, someone would post some cool recipe. Yes, I do the cooking in my household. And I, that's what we're going to have for dinner. That is a proper use of, of social media. Uh, any thoughts on that?
1: I totally agree. Uh, I also like pet videos. I'm a big fan of kittens, bunnies, an occasional llama. Yeah, I'm all for that.
0: Anyone tripping? You probably have already kind of guessed my uh, approach. Whenever I see a funny joke, I'm pretty much sending it to you. I did send you a funny joke recently about judges. Uh, I don't know if you remember that one. It was actually quite a while ago. I say it's. No, I I remember. I just can't
1: remember what it was, but I remember. But when I say.
0: when I say it just happened, it very well could have happened a year ago because I'm already old. So to me, it's the same time <laughs> period, you know, two years ago or last week. But it was a, um, oh, Pearls Before Swine joke where Rat is one of the main characters. By the way, Pearls Before Swine, you got to read it and be a fan. The guy who writes this is actually a lawyer. Uh, and so that, that's interesting in and of itself. But Rad is saying, look at me, goat. I've become a judge. It's always been a lifelong dream of mine. Hey, that sounds familiar. I think you said that earlier today. (laughs) Good for you, Rat. This is from the goat. Good for you, Rat. That's a critical role in our system of due process. What made you want to do it? Rat said. They give you a hammer to hit idiots. The goat says, that's not what that's for. And then Rat says, okay, you're the first. So I'm just wondering, is that why you wanted to become a judge?
1: Yeah, remember when we talked about the movie Liar Liar and my stepson said, yes. like, are they, you know, he has the big hammer thing. I just want the big hammer thing. How could you not want the big hammer thing?
0: Oh, it's power, man. You, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, uh, which also came from another classic movie, I believe, Spider Man. But you nonetheless, are <laughs> One more case here before we get totally off the rails here. Denver Bible Church v. Paulus. This was also an interesting case at the Supreme Court recently. What happened here was, McKenzie, a church in Denver did not like the state's COVID restrictions. Apparently, whatever department in Denver passed these regulations saying look it limits the, the church attendance and also it says you, you got to wear masks and you got to be vaccinated all these kinds of things so there were these these onerous restrictions on churches a lawsuit was filed from a church saying look we don't we think these restrictions are unconstitutional by the way the supreme court recently ruled against governor Gavin Newsom there in Californ- California saying that these restrictions were unconstitutional, violated the First Amendment. So this Denver church was making a very similar argument. But, Mackenzie, this is the important distinction in this case. What happened in this Denver case is the pandemic has really kind of gone away in in a lot of areas. And so the government there in Colorado withdrew those uh, requirements. And so the case really was a, was no longer a live controversy. The mask mandate really now is just a mask suggestion. That's kind of how I view stop signs. It's a stop suggestion, right? Not really requiring you to wear a mask. And so uh, this went to Gorsuch. So what happens is if you, appla- if you appeal to the Supreme Court for emergency relief. In other words, you want the Supreme Court to act right now to give you emergency relief. We can't wait for a trial. We can't wait two years. You got to rule now. It goes to one justice. And then that one justice can either, one, grant you the emergency relief, or if he thinks it's a really important issue, might send it to the rest of the court for a full body consideration. Gorsuch didn't even bother to do that, which means that this case really he thought it had no merit, and so went ahead and dismissed it out of hand. McKenzie, to me, what this really um, reinforces is this idea that the Supreme Court does not want to deal with issues it doesn't have to deal with. If this is no longer a live controversy, why get themselves involved in murky issues? And so they just passed on, even though they probably thought the decision below was incorrect, why pick up a case when you don't have to? A- any thoughts on that?
1: Totally. And I think, you know, when you're in law school and you learn about the the doctrines of justiciability, it's one of those areas where you don't really know about it before you become a lawyer, right? Like, you know a little bit about contracts, you know a little bit about criminal law just from living in the world, but you don't really understand this concept of like, courts can't always decide every case, like there are some cases where it's not a case or controversy and it's not a justiciable issue either because like in this case it's moot or because the person suing you know doesn't have standing to bring that lawsuit because they won't be harmed by the conduct or any other number of issues and I agree I think it's you know certainly the court doesn't want to get involved in issues that aren't live controversies it also may have been a signal like hey we're done with the COVID cases now like we're done with this and please don't file anymore because we have decided plenty of them and we've made ourselves perfectly clear
0: (laughs) now now, I do know we're in the middle of Supreme Court sweep season uh, all throughout June. And there's a lot of great cases coming down the pipe. And I know you're a busy person. I hope we can get you back a couple of times to comment on these. But uh, what cases are coming down the, the, the pipe that you are, are are a particular interest to you?
1: Well, and you, because there's a a couple cases out of my home circuit, the Third Circuit, both of which are First Amendment cases. One has to do with freedom of speech. One has to do with freedom of religion that I think are very interesting. Um, Particularly, my favorite one is the—or the one I'm most interested in is the speech case because it comes out of a school district in Pennsylvania um, where a sophomore— a uh, student tried right. out for the cheerleading team. She made the JV cheerleading team. And then I guess, like, right after that, there was a freshman who made varsity. And this did not sit well with the sophomore. <laughs> so on a Saturday, she and I guess a friend were off campus, it was on the weekend, and they got on Snapchat, which is another social media platform, and they, you know, posted a Snapchat to their story or whatever that used some choice phrases that expressed exactly (laughs) how they felt about the school, about cheer, and about everything. And Snapchats, I guess, are supposed to disappear after 24 hours, they go away, but... Drama! Another student on the cheerleading squad took a screenshot of the Snapchat and oh. showed it to the coach. Who even this does This is Netflix
0: that. written all over it again. This is another Netflix special. This is so it might drama. Have it's
1: like nine zero two one zero level drama over right. here.
0: <laughs> and it she is um R-rated, or what, I don't know how Netflix does its ratings, TV, MA, or whatever, because he, as you refer to him as choice words, now that you are a candidate, Mackenzie Smith, <laughs> uh, can also be described as the F-bomb, uh, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, I mean, that that's what the person said There is like, you know what? Screw F-whatever. The school cheerleaders, everyone just, I'm not having a good day, but uh, I'm sorry. Go on.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And um, so the coaching staff was made aware. The school was made aware. And I, the student was suspended from the cheer squad, like kicked off the cheer squad for the rest of the year. And they did tell her, like, you can try out again next year, but you're off cheer. You can't do cheer. Um, but that,
0: was, that, that post was done outside of school time, out, off school property. And, and so why should a school be able to discipline you for dropping an F-bomb in your room, in your house, I, I don't get that.
1: Yeah, so that's that the issue in the case. So there's this case from the 1960s called Tinker, right? Where it's that case said that public schools, public schools are state actors, so they do, you know, they're not allowed to violate people's constitutional rights. But the court in Tinker basically acknowledged that, you know, when you're dealing with public. Secondary schools, public high schools, and lower—you um, know—there is some room for regulation of speech there. And specifically, the holding of Tinker was that a public school can regulate speech that would substantially disrupt the school's work. And it, right. you know, traditionally, that had to be on campus because, you know, like in 1969, when Tinker was decided, that's the only type of speech that would substantially disrupt the school is if you were, you know, having an outburst and screaming obscenities in school or, you know, walking out of class and doing a protest in school, I guess. So that could be regulated. But now in the age of social media, where you, you know, post something on social media on the weekend off campus, the school argued, you know, that quickly made its way into school and there there aren't those rigid boundaries anymore between on-campus and off-campus so the school should be able to regulate any speech no matter where it occurs and when it occurs if there's a plausible argument that it's disruptive to the school's functioning
0: now what i find interesting about tinker is i believe tinker involved the wearing of armbands at school To protest the Vietnam War and how the court ruled, I believe, was that this was viewpoint discrimination because this was trying to uh, disrupt... The, the, the school. And so, nonetheless, here in this case, so so back in Tinker, it was a 7 2 decision. The Supreme Court held the armbands represented pure speech. Uh, it is entirely separate from the actions or conduct of those participating in it. And the court said that students do not lose their First Amendment rights when they step onto the schoolhouse gates. And this was viewpoint based speech uh, re- restriction. All right. So, as applied here to the F the school, uh, if they do apply the Tinker standard to it, was it disruptive in school? And then secondly, is this a viewpoint-based speech restriction? I think clearly it is. I think saying F the school is expressing your viewpoint about a matter, right? And so um, I, I think the court is going to rule on the side of the student here. I think they're going to give the student a reprieve. I think they're, they're going to say there was no substantial disruption. Uh, and so um, uh, that the school overreached and, and sent it back. Uh, do you have any predictions on that case?
1: I agree with you. I think they're going to rule. I, you know, it's, uh, I guess, noteworthy that the both the district court and the Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the student here. And I think, you know, it is an interesting area of the law because I can think of some situations in which, you know, off-campus speech or speech via social media might be disruptive at school, like if it's directed towards a particular teacher or, you know, some otherwise like, you know, directly target something that's going on at school at the time. But I don't think this is that case. I think this is right. a case where, you know, the statements that were made were totally separate. Um You know, even minors do have a right to express these opinions. And, you know, whether the school appreciated it or not is kind of of no moment here. Like, that's the whole point of the First Amendment.
0: Exactly. Now, there was a lot – there are a lot of people who are concerned about how this case might – support or uh, allow for bullying in schools, which my response is no. That's a valid concern. That's not this case. The courts can be very clear to say this case does not support bullying, but there's no evidence whatsoever that this involved the bullying of any student. And so that's a totally different matter. Not before the court. This is just simply, can you say something outside of school That might pertain to what you do in school, but it's not substantially disruptive. And in the event, uh, the court might set new rules down uh, for how we view free speech in the future as it relates to public school students, but it's not going to bless bullying in the schools. That's going to be a totally uh, case not within the, the four corners of this document. All right. Uh, Any other cases of interest to you? You mentioned another case, I believe, out of Philadelphia.
1: Yes. So the Philadelphia case, and I think we actually talked about this many months ago. I I believe this case was actually argued... The day after the 2020 election. So it's like right. lost in the haze,
0: like Q4 right.
1: 2020 goings on. Um, a long but time ago. A long, a lifetime ago. But the case is Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. And yeah, like I mentioned, it's another First Amendment case, although it has to do with. Um, freedom of religion, not freedom of speech necessarily, and it kind of is similar. It comes in the wake of the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that, you know, kind of broke the internet several years ago, but essentially this case right. has to do with um, the foster care system in Philadelphia, and it's kind of near and dear to me because I used to be a child advocate. I worked, I represented children who were in the foster care system, so I do have a little bit of a first-hand um, view of how that system works, and what happened here is Philadelphia has the city has, I guess, facially neutral criteria for um, e- the agencies with which it works to refer children to foster pa- to use that will place children with foster parents, um, and it terminated its relationship with a uh, Catholic Social Services is the name of the organization because Catholic Social Services will not uh, consider same-sex married couples as potential foster parents. And th- that violated okay. the city's policies. And the city said, like, we're not doing business with you anymore. We're not going to refer people to you anymore. And that, you know, sparked a lawsuit. And it's made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. Wow. And, and, you know, it hasn't been decided yet, but it's going to come out within the next you know couple of weeks here. So.
0: so the issue in that case, again, this organization refers people for adoption and they referred people to it for adoptions to this Catholic organization that would not um, uh, place pit people um, uh, or kids in, in uh, same-sex uh, uh, households. And I Mackenzie, I cannot tell you how that case is going to turn out. I have not I mean, my mind is just racing to both sides. I can see the court going a hundred different directions with this. One of the ways I can see the court ruling here is, is by saying, look, this Catholic organization still can engage in adoption, just not through the government's uh, services. And, and so we're not saying you can't be involved in the placement of adoptions. just you can't force the government. This is very much like Lock v Davy, where the case went before the u s. Supreme Court of whether or not you can force the government to issue scholarships. To places and for things it does not want to fund. No, that is a different issue than discriminating, uh, you know, prohibiting someone from, um, you know, uh, giving out scholarships, but requiring the government to, to force the government to, that's a a different issue altogether. I have no idea how this case is going to come out. It'll be be exciting to unpack it once it does come down.
1: It's so complicated and so nuanced. And I think, you know, it's a good example of a case that really... um you know, speaks to the intersection of, obviously, you know, Catholic Social Services saying, well, we have free exercise here. And like you mentioned, the government is saying, well, we have a facially neutral policy that we're just like adhering to. And both sides, like they're not wrong. So where, when those paths cross, you know, what is the outcome? And I think at oral argument, you know, Justice Alito then kind of mentioned like, well, It's clear that the city really just like hates the conservative message that Catholic Social Services is sending, or it doesn't like their beliefs. And you know, where's is there room? For that to be considered by the court, like, does that even matter when you have a facially neutral policy? I don't know. There are so many nuances here and the court will have to kind of wrestle with all of them. And this is one that really, I agree with you, like on the last case, we kind of have a pretty good prediction. I feel like on this one, I have no idea what the majority is going to look like, who's going to write the opinion and what the result is going to be.
0: Wow. Well, stay tuned, because we will uncover that. Uh, maybe make a couple more idiotic predictions before the case actually gets <laughs> decided, uh, because I, I've been involved in so many of these cases, and it just, it just shocks you to see how the court is is so brilliant. I mean, these guys are all at the top of the profession, right, guys and gals? Uh, they're at the top. They're Harvard. They're Ivy League trained. If they want to reach a certain conclusion they're smart enough that they can figure out a way to do that. My old con law professor told me, Joel, let me give you a little bit of an idea how the Supreme Court works. It's any stick to beat a dog. You don't use the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court uses you. And so they want to reach a decision. Not only will they reach that decision, but they will write that opinion so magnificently, you would say, well, duh, of course that's the law. It, it just sounds so intelligent. Uh, I, true story. So, One time I read an opinion. It was involving Arizona and and the um, matching funds for, for in a campaign, I read the majority opinion that I think was written by Breyer. And I thought, absolutely, this person nailed it. This is exactly right. I then read the dissent, I believe by the opposite, maybe Scalia, and I might have these flip-flopped. And then I thought, they're absolutely right. This makes total amount of sense. They were saying the opposite things, and I was in total agreement with both sides. And so maybe we get a similar type of outcome in this case. So Any true. part of thoughts?
1: No, that's so true. And I think that's the humility that we have to have as lawyers because, you know, lawyers, as lawyers, we tend to view ourselves as, like, really smart. And sometimes I'll write a brief and go, oh, my God, like, this is Amazing! How could this ever, like, this is, like, the best brief that's ever been written. It's so amazing. And then I'll get an opinion that's not only adverse to me, but is, like, such a smackdown. And I will say, like, this hasn't happened that many times. Like, a pretty, you know, pretty good track record. But sometimes it does happen, and you're like, oh, my goodness, how did I not even see it right. from that angle, I am so much dumber than these learned justices. And, you know, it definitely, it does happen. And it it gives us, you know, if you have that humility, then you always have something to look up to and you can learn from it, right? Like you just try to learn from it and think like, okay, next time I'm not going to make that same short-sighted mistake. I'm going to try and look at it from this angle too. And that's part of the process, I guess. And it's how, how we become better advocates. But yeah, they definitely know what they're doing.
0: Hey, you know what? That great way to end today's podcast. I gave you the last word. Thank you so much for listening today. And that is this week's debriefing of the law. See you next week.
1: Thank you for having me back.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our Vice President of Operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a mess, Sean Wynn and 15Five Features for making me sound way better than I actually do, Brooke Bolin for spreading the good word about us, and Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Triplicity Marketing for our technical and computer support.